this is a podcast from the Refugee Study Centre. To learn more about our work, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk. Let me also welcome you all here today, despite the beautiful sunshine outside. And uh, It's a great opportunity for me to be here because, indeed, I'm, I'm working on this complex and difficult topic, something that's extremely topical at EU level right now. I should confess right away that it's a bit intimidating for me to be here speaking with people who have written a great deal of very authoritative material about it. But I'm hoping that perhaps with uh, the small group we have, we might be able to have a bit of discussion afterwards as well, and I'd be very interested to hear some of your ideas. I'm going to speak to you about the European Union context in particular, and I'm focusing specifically on the question of solidarity between states within the European Union. One can have uh, very interesting discussions also about issues of solidarity between states and individuals, about solidarity within international organisations and uh, between other entities uh, acting at international and national level as well. But we'll keep it limited today um, because there's a great deal to discuss and a great many problematic questions arising in the EU context. Um, I'll speak uh, basically... Um, I'll cover four main areas. First of all, just very briefly to look into the general uh, concept of solidarity and some of the related terminology, responsibility sharing, but also other issues, uh, including international cooperation and burden sharing. Um, The common European asylum system specifically. The question of solidarity as it is today, because the Lisbon Treaty has put the solidarity question very squarely on the agenda and has um, given a basis for what should be a much more advanced and effective form of uh, cooperation between EU member states than we've seen in the past. But then perhaps looking a bit towards the future, because now is an interesting time with the EU about to adopt strategic guidelines to govern the next seven years on justice and home affairs. Um, So in terms of the international level... There's no general principle of solidarity in international treaty law, nor uh, an authoritative or generally accepted definition of the concept. Um, We have some specific international instruments that are in particular thematic areas, particularly in the fields of environmental law and also trade and development. But they tend to be very specific in what they require of states in their confined areas. Um, And uh, most uh, commentators conclude that there is no general principle uh, of solidarity for which there is a binding or widely understood meaning. We have... Declaration, uh, resolutions of the General Assembly of the European uh, of the uh, United Nations, which most recently has pronounced itself on this in the Millennium Declaration, um, talking about solidarity as a fundamental value essential to international relations in the 21st century. And that uh, declaration has underlined that this is uh, about ensuring that costs uh, and uh, burdens can be distributed fairly. 
it's not hard or binding international law. It's not framed in terms of a specific obligation to states, and it's not specific about what states are expected to do in uh, terms of responding to this. But it makes it clear that this is a goal, this is a principle that the states uh, which adopted this declaration see as important, which is uh, important for various areas of international cooperation. In looking for a definition of this concept, um, there are many different commentators who have sought to articulate uh, different perspectives on including particularly in the refugee field. Um, this is one uh, commentator, Fontaine, from uh, the 1980s, who uh, described it as a principle of global equity whereby nations that have the necessary means should assist those that do not. Um, and he, uh, amongst others, has applied that specifically to the refugee domain. But its amorphous nature is also widely acknowledged. Um, and we have uh, Alston, who has referred to the potential dangers of a concept which can be seen to uh, entail many different things. It is, in his words, almost uh, could be seen to have a metaphysical meaning unless its specific requirements and implications are spelled out. And... I think having progressed my research to the stage it's at now, I would agree that it is a concept which can be invoked in many contexts in a way that suggests uh, that there uh, is much that states are ready to do, but perhaps not always then providing a basis for concrete uh, action thereafter. It's interesting to see that the language in the documents where solidarity is mentioned is very often very strong, very exhortatory, very ambitious in its terms. And it seems that this creates at least some risk that it will create expectations on the part of those states that seek help. Solidarity, including in the refugee field in particular, is mentioned uh, often together or uh, uh, sometimes interchangeably with a number of other important concepts. International cooperation is uh, also a recurrent notion in public international law, arguably a stronger principle than solidarity, referred to uh, specifically in the UN Charter, where there's a duty of states that's articulated to cooperate to solve problems of an economic, social or humanitarian character. There is also um, ubiquitous in the refugee field in particular uh, a reference to the concept of burden sharing. Um, and this has been uh, something that has come up in debates since the beginning of the refugee uh, protection regime. And more recently, effectively since the 1980s or 90s, we see use of the term responsibility sharing that has come into more frequent application as well. And this is particularly now, I think, something we see uh, as a preferred term by UNHCR and civil society actors. And it appears to be that this is because it has fewer negative connotations than that of the language of burden sharing. It suggests that refugees are not simply a burden to be borne, but holders of rights who can contribute something to their societies. It refers specifically also then to the responsibilities of states towards them uh, to take action to ensure that their legal rights are honoured. But it's not clear that this is uh, necessarily the terminology that's accepted by all states, particularly those who are non-signatories of the Geneva Convention, in some cases it seems, have resisted the idea that they have treaty uh, responsibilities pursuant to treaty, although, of course, other uh, customary law, uh, including non-reformant in particular, would be said to bind them. 
um, uh, the terminology of responsibility sharing is particularly interesting uh, for, for me today because it's the language that has found its way into the uh, Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union in Article 80, to which I'll return in a minute. As regards the Convention, we have no specific mention of solidarity, but we do have acknowledgement in the preamble, Article 4, of the fact that uh, grants of asylum may place unduly heavy burdens on certain countries and that there is a need for international cooperation to work to try and address these problems. Um, what we have effectively then here is an implied obligation for states to cooperate, to share these burdens, which is a part of the architecture of the international protection system. It acknowledges that it's international in character by virtue of the fact that people have crossed a border um, to seek protection and that they are no longer able to benefit from the protection of their own state. UNHCR has also uh, acknowledged this and spoken of it extensively. Um, the former High Commissioner speaking about the prevalence of the language of solidarity and burden sharing, uh, not only in the Executive Committee's uh, re conclusions, but also UN General Assembly resolutions about the work of his office. Um, and it's clearly thus something that is very heavily present in the dialogue and the rhetoric of states when they're dealing with refugee protection. So why is it, what are the rationales for states to, con, to engage in solidarity? We've, I've, I've indicated that it's something about which they are, uh, are ready to discuss extensively in international fora, but uh, there are many questions around why it is something that they would see as being in their interest. Um, many writers who've looked at this have highlighted, of course, first and foremost, the, uh, the question of the unfairness of the way in which challenges and uh, responsibilities for refugee protection are distributed. Uh, UNHCR has pointed out that today there are some 80% of the world's refugee population who are said to be hosted in developing countries. I think Mr Guterres said last year that, um, in fact, if the refugee population of the world were to be contained in one single country, that country would be amongst the world's 30 biggest nations in terms of its population size. It's a number that's bigger than the population of Slovenia or Latvia, for example. We have uh, uh, thus this very large number distributed in certain parts of the world are not in others. Um, we see, of course, also today with the Syria situation, this uneven distribution of needs and uh, responsibilities very clearly highlighted with it's now close to 2.7 million Syrian refugees in the neighbouring states around Syria. Um, by contrast, in Europe, we've got around 80,000 uh, asylum seekers who have asked for protection in the 28 European member states, plus Norway, Liechtenstein, uh, Monaco and uh, Iceland. Um, so we have a population of Syrians in, Jordan for, in, in Lebanon, for example, that uh, is equal to some 25% of Jordan's own population, placing a very serious demand. And within the European Union, of course, we also have uh, imbalances in the way in which asylum seekers are distributed. So there is arguably a case to be made for uh, solidarity in order to redress these imbalances. This is something that, of course, is then rooted in morality and in normative approaches to refugee protection. There are also arguments that have been made that this is something that's practically essential in order to maintain the international protection regime. 
if states don't seek to assist each other, then the danger is that those who have large numbers of asylum seekers or refugees at their borders will simply refuse to let them in. And there will be thus significant risks of violations of refugees' rights on a large scale. There's also been uh, arguments made over the years that this is important as a form of insurance, that states have an interest in offering help to each other in the hope that should they ever come under pressure of that a similar scale themselves, they would also be able to expect assistance from other states um, elsewhere. This is something which James Hathaway and uh, Neve have uh, argued for in the past, which has been extensively discussed in the literature um, over the years. So that's a few reasons why states should think about all of this. But what are the disincentives and the reasons, uh, the obstacles in its path? Well, first of all, as I've said before, it's difficult to point to clearly defined binding legal obligations to take certain actions uh, in the name of the principle of solidarity or responsibility sharing. Um, we also have, in practice, uh, very uh, strict approaches that have been developed and continue to be taken um, in many industrialised countries uh, for the use of the so-called safe third country concept, the idea that a refugee should be expected to seek protection in the first country uh, in which he or she has an opportunity. Um, this, of course, is something uh, which is applied by looking simply at the question of whether the third country can be seen to be safe for the purposes of providing refugee protection. It's a notion that has no regard to the capacity of that state to continue to, to lend support. Although, in principle, of course, if a state is uh, so overwhelmed that it reaches the point it can no longer provide protection, it might no longer be safe. Um, we also have, I think, uh, experiences at different points along the spectrum of efforts in the past to um, mobilise collective action on the parts of states to show solidarity. There's been some examples that are held up as very successful, most notably perhaps the comprehensive plan of action for Indo-Chinese refugees in the 1980s and 90s. But there are also others where there's been attempts to mobilise states to work together which have worked less successfully. And Germany's experience in calling on other European states to uh, collaborate with it to deal with refugees from the former Yugoslavia might be one. We also have um, arguments from uh, the economic perspective that are uh, used as analogies to point out that states might be discouraged by the risk of so-called free riding. Um, and I'm sure Alexander will be able to tell us this in much more articulate detail. But this refers to the idea that states that do not contribute to solidarity actions nonetheless might seek to benefit from them. Um, and that this is, this is in some way a disincentive for the providers. Um, and there are, then there, of course, is the phenomenon of states uh, seeking to deal with immediate political concerns and their domestic priorities at home, which in many cases would mitigate against showing more generous approaches to admission and help for refugees in, as part of solidarity actions. So all of these are strong reasons why states are reluctant in many cases, but in the EU we have something very 
a, a very different context in many ways. The notion of solidarity in European Union terms is in many ways a fundamental principle that underlies many parts of the way in which the EU functions. The notion that one has a union of states that have, by definition, a set of common interests and that they need to work together in order to uphold that system and its underpinnings at every level is very strong in EU law and in the jurisprudence of the Court of Justice uh, throughout the years. And we have a very clear and unequivocal formulation now in the treaty as well regarding asylum. So in the European Union, we do have something very strong which uh, should be bearing on states and their, their conduct in this field. Okay, very quickly, I won't go into depth about the EU asylum context, but perhaps some, some, to highlight some key uh, background elements. Um, we have, in the first political declaration made by European heads of states on the, their efforts to build a common European asylum system, an affirmation of their commitment to the principle of solidarity. The Tampere conclusions adopted in 1999 um, uh, were uh, put in place briefly before the European Union's move to transfer full legal competence for asylum from national level to EU level. And so this set of conclusions can be seen to provide a very clear political orientation for how the uh, EU saw its way forward in building this common system. And solidarity was clearly expressed as an important part of that. In the succeeding years, we had a set of uh, common uh, EU standards adopted that were binding on all EU member states across a range of different uh, uh, legal areas covering different parts of the asylum system. Um, and this included specific provision for states to receive or to, uh, to uh, provide assistance in order to help them fulfil their asylum obligations. The financial support that the European Refugee Fund was designed to offer was uh, specifically foreseen as a way in which the EU collectively would seek to bear some of the costs that uh, would result from meeting the EU standards that were being put in place. Uh, the relevant article of the Treaty of Amsterdam that provided the basis for this European Refugee Fund specifically stated that it is a measure that is designed to provide a balance of effort between member states in receiving and bearing the consequences of receiving refugees and displaced persons. The European Refugee Fund was uh, adopted at the beginning of, of the inception of the Common European Asylum System um, and a very significant amount of money has been dispersed over the years. It's divided between money given directly to, to member states to uh, take care of the costs of running their national asylum systems and collaborative efforts between uh, member states working together. Um, it's designed to encourage states with the, the so-called community action strands to work together on various projects. And it was an envelope that was significantly increased when the European Refugee Fund was renewed in 2008 to 13. Arguably, this is the strongest example of uh, provision for solidarity within the EU member states. But whether it has had the effect of ensuring that states are uh, have been, first of all, meeting their uh, obligations uh, to the level that the EU norms have, have proposed, and secondly, that they have done so working together and in a consistent and mutually supporting way, is something that many observers have questioned. Um, there was another important instrument that the EU adopted in the first years after 1999 that needs to be mentioned here, which was also designed to provide a very clear 
ground for collaboration and for mutual support. I mentioned Germany's experience during the 1990s in receiving refugees from the former Yugoslavia. Germany had uh, close to 400,000 refugees from the former Yugoslavia at one point, um, uh, numbers far uh, exceeding those in other states and with no European support to assist it at the time. And so when in 2001 the EU uh, sought to begin adopting legislation, the first instrument they adopted was the so-called Temporary Protection Directive, which was designed to deal specifically with a possible future situation of so-called mass influx, um, uh, the possibility that uh, a group of people from one country or geographical area would arrive in uh, one or more member states in a way that would put undue pressure on their system. Um, the Temporary Protection Directive put in place a system whereby the Council would be required to vote on whether or not to apply the directive. There would be specific provision for financial assistance to states that were affected. Um, but most importantly, Member States would then thereafter be required to admit all refugees or uh, coming from that, the designated country or re uh, region without subjecting them to an individual assessment of their claims and of their status and providing them with a very generous set of rights including immediate access to the labour market, social assistance, um, even family reunification in a limited way. Um, member states were also required as part of the temporary protection regime to notify each other of their capacity to receive refugees. But interestingly, there was no specific binding obligation in this directive to then make available those places. This was the result of a very difficult negotiation process where in the end member states refused to take that further step that the European Commission had proposed and commit to a binding obligation to receive those uh, uh, additional numbers beyond those that had arrived in their territories up to the level of their reception capacity. So it was an imperfect system, but nonetheless it was an important uh, step forward to put in place a measure that should have been able to be used in case of uh, a large-scale arrival in the EU. But until now, it's never been used. It's been discussed in theoretical terms on a couple of occasions. In 2008 and 2009, when Sweden experienced dramatic rises in the numbers of Iraqi asylum seekers coming from one year to the next, from 10,000 to 20,000 in one year and then a jump to 40,000 the next. But Sweden at that time specifically declined to ask for invocation of the Temporary Protection Directive. Similarly in 2011 when large numbers of people arrived in Italy from North African states there was talk about whether it would be necessary to consider this. But in the end the numbers that arrived were limited and in any case uh, not seen to be of a refugee profile in uh, a large proportion of cases. There has also been discussion as to whether or not this is something you should be considering for Syria, but there is no immediate proposal to put that on the table now. And the reason seems very clear. Member states consider this would be a pull factor. Given the generous level of rights that would follow, this would be something which could create the risk that even more Syrians would be, would be tempted to come to the European Union. And so this instrument that should have been designed to help and could potentially have helped some of the states that are dealing with particularly large numbers of Syrian refugees right now has never been put into practice. Um, I want to mention the Dublin regulation as well, um, not because it's a responsibility sharing instrument, but in fact because it's 
the reverse of a responsibility sharing instrument in the views of many observers. The Dublin system, of course, is a system aimed to allocate responsibility for determining an asylum claim amongst European Union member states. Where an asylum seeker arrives who might have links to more than one member state, the Dublin regulation defines the criteria that should be applied to determine which state ultimately will deal with his or her claim. And these criteria are uh, clearly defined and they are hierarchical. They have to be applied in the order in which they are relevant. Um, They include uh, the question of where family members are located. The most frequently used criterion is that of the first state of irregular entry to the European Union. This is, in by far the vast majority of cases, the state which is found to be responsible in Dublin's practical application today. Um, but uh, it's, uh, there, there is argue, there is a discretion that the regulation offers for states to decide to take responsibility for a claim that is not, strictly speaking, uh, theirs under the Dublin criteria. But this is used in a very small proportion of times. What is not included anywhere in the Dublin criteria is uh, the question of a member state's capacity to absorb and to process asylum seekers. Capacity is specifically not one of the grounds which is relevant to determining which state will deal with the claim. The Dublin system has many critics, particularly amongst civil society um, and human rights groups, but for states it was reaffirmed um, in 2009 and has been subsequently as a cornerstone of the common European asylum system. Um, there are a number of union of, of member states who persist in uh, arguing that it proposes a disproportionate burden on them, and Greece and Italy are particularly vocal amongst those states, particularly these days. But it is clearly something which northern member states consider extremely important and which there is no discussion at this point um, of changing in very significant ways. In 2013, a set of amendments to the Dublin regulation were adopted, so-called recast, which has clearly re-established, reaffirmed the existing system of allocating responsibility based on the criteria that are there. So it appears this is not something member states are ready to release right now, um, notwithstanding the fact that it is certainly not something that's seen as apportioning responsibility in line with the principle of solidarity. Um, There's a lot of difficulties, which I won't go into in depth, about the way in which Dublin is applied, perhaps. Just to mention one in particular, which is interesting, is the very low number of actual transfers that ever take place. There's been some improvements over the years, whereas it was only about a quarter in 2009-10. There was, in 2012, around about 40% of cases in which a Dublin transfer actually happened after it had been requested by one state and accepted by another. And this is interesting because what this highlights is that the system arguably doesn't even deliver the benefits to the state's that support it and favour its continued application. It's supposed to be a system which is designed to ensure claims are allocated in uh, accordance with agreed criteria, but it seems in practice that's not the result. 
There is very little public information about the costs of the Dublin system as a whole. It's true they're very difficult to separate from other costs associated with asylum systems. But what seems clear is that it is a system that involves a great deal of resources. Each state has a dedicated Dublin unit, which is involved full-time in processing requests in or out. Um, and there is a large database, uh, the Eurodac system, which is funded by the European Union that supports this. So it raises interesting questions about um, whether this instrument is even serving the purpose of those uh, who are its ongoing supporters, let alone those who argue that it's contrary to the principle of solidarity and is bringing about negative effects for states and asylum seekers. Um, just to recall very briefly that we've had two major judgments from European courts over recent years which have found that Dublin needs to be uh, applied in an uh, it cannot be applied in an unqualified um, and uh, unreflective way. The case of MSS against Belgium and Greece which concluded that returning asylum seekers to Greece um, uh, amounted to a breach of Article 3 of the European Convention and the Court of Justice, one year later, reached a decision which also had the effect of preventing Dublin returns to Greece, concluding that uh, states could not be unaware of the systemic deficiencies in reception conditions and asylum procedures in Greece at the time, um, and finding that on that basis, in cases where there were such systemic deficiencies, the Dublin system could not be applied. So does all of that mean and what's that got to do with solidarity? Well, one thing it's done is that the judgments and their uh, consequent result being a suspension of all Dublin transfers to Greece have triggered a major EU investment um, and also bilateral investment on the part of individual states who have provided support and assistance to Greece since 2010 in implementing its asylum reform plan, effectively a reconstruction of Greece's asylum and reception system from the ground up. Um, it's also triggered extensive discussion in the negotiation of amendments to Dublin. But interestingly, it did not lead to the inclusion of a mechanism that the European Commission had specifically asked for that would have allowed Dublin's use to be suspended temporarily in a Greece-like situation. Member states who were opposed to the idea of a temporary suspension mechanism argued that this would be rewarding failure or perhaps rewarding neglect, that this would simply be an encouragement to states whose systems were uh, experiencing defects to allow them to continue to operate uh, below EU standards in the hope this would mean that they would no longer receive Dublin transfers um, and would have to deal with fewer asylum seekers. So the temporary suspension mechanism did not make its way in. Um, there has been a great deal of uh, emphasis placed subsequent to NSME and MSS on the role of the European Asylum Support Office, an entity found, uh, established in 2010 that has the specific task of supporting EU member states in their practical cooperation on asylum. And that support office has been charged with providing assistance to Greece in particular, but also a number of other member states. Clearly a mechanism by which member states hope that they will not have a situation like Greece that would come about again. There has been, uh, I think we can say really, a very intensified debate on what solidarity should require, on what support member states should be able to expect from each other, but also what they should be expected to do in order to deserve that so-called, uh, that, that, that form of support. 
Um, and in this, we've had uh, a lot of discussion on the part uh, and, and, and uh, expressions on the part, particularly of northern and western states, of the fact that not only the principle of solidarity um, uh, needs to be respected, but also the principle of responsibility. And interestingly, when that is discussed, it's not in the sense of uh, sharing and collectively taking on responsibilities. They talk very specifically about the need for each member state to fulfil its own individual state responsibilities as a form of precondition for receiving support for others. And this has become a very political and very acrimonious debate um, in many respects. So, what does Lisbon mean for all of this? Well, we had in 2009, just before the scale of the Greek challenge really came to light and uh, under discussion, um, the coming into force of the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union, which contains a, a provision that states very specifically that the policies of the European Union, not only on asylum, but also asylum, migration and borders, um, should be governed by the principle of solidarity and fair sharing of responsibility. It says that this is including its financial implications, but the implication is clear that there should also therefore be other measures, um, other measures which are not specified and which are not defined in Lisbon, but nonetheless are foreseen in order to uh, ensure respect for this provision. So what is it that has been done on the basis of Article 80? Well, first of all, at the level of financial support, we've had a new uh, regulation that has just been agreed. It's been approved by the European Parliament in the last few weeks. It's a successor to the European Refugee Fund. The Asylum Migration and Integration Fund, in fact, replaces a number of budget loans from the EU in the past. Um, and it's going to provide financial resources, some 3.1 billion euro, to cover asylum, migration and integration activities for the next seven years. Um, it includes specific wording in its preamble and in its objectives uh, about ensuring, enhancing solidarity and responsibility amongst member states. But very interestingly, there was a, a very difficult discussion in the last weeks between the Council and the Parliament about whether Article 80 would specifically be named as the legal basis for this regulation. And in the end, the Council and the Parliament decided no. It's interesting. I'm not. Uh, there's there's a lot of speculation about what the reasons for this are, but it seems that probably the most likely explanation is that whilst member states are happy to refer to these provisions in the body of the instrument, they did not wish to make what could be seen as a wider commitment that could open scope for more far-reaching obligations later on. Um, this new financial envelope is a bit less than had been expected, but nonetheless it represents a proportionate increase uh, over what's been done in the past. It seems to be clear that for member states, financial uh, support and sharing of costs is the easiest and the uh, most favoured means by which they want to honour the solidarity principle until now. Um, there is not uh, clearly spelled out actions or uh, processes that are in the regulation now uh, as to how that mon money should be spent, but there is consensus that there needs to be more coordination, that there needs to be a fair balance between the different parts of the funding allocation between asylum, integration and, uh, and migration 
potentially expenditure, particularly on e- illegal migration. But there's going to need to be quite a, a significantly improved level of monitoring to ensure that those funds are spent in a proportionate way. And this is something which the Parliament at least has expressed its uh, uh, strong desire to do. Um, there has also been, in the last couple of years, significant discussion around the idea of relocation as a means of solidarity and sharing responsibility. Uh, and this is something which closely resembles resettlement, but which uh, is not called resettlement in order not to confuse uh, these actions with resettlement of refugees from third countries to the European Union. Effectively, what it means is states offering places for people who have been granted protection in one state to go and to receive residence in another. And this has specifically been an initiative that's been designed to respond to appeals from Malta, Malta, of course, is one of the smallest member states and has repeatedly over the years expressed its concern that it is not able to integrate the refugee numbers that it receives, um, uh, which in Malta's view are disproportionately large, perhaps due uh, to its geographical position en route to uh, Italy, uh, and with the result that many sea arrivals end up in Malta seeking asylum. Um, The relocation scheme was conceived as an EU-funded project and member states were asked to come forward and offer places. Um, It was a difficult scheme on which to get agreement. There was a lot of concern about how the selection process would go and this seemed to be based, at least in part, on some member states' misgivings about whether or not the Maltese decisions on uh, eligibility for refugee status were of uh, the quality that they felt that they could rely upon. It went ahead and over uh, two phases of the project led to the relocation of around 600 people. But there were many problems that resulted as a consequence, um, such that a number of the refugees, including some transferred to some Central European countries, asked ultimately to return to Malta. Member states portrayed this as asylum tourism, um, ungrateful refugees who weren't ready to uh, take up the generous offers that they had received. But UNHCR has documented that there were a lot of difficulties with the conditions that were awaiting some of these refugees when they were transferred, uh, promises that they would receive accommodation for uh, a fixed period of time that was no longer available, financial uh, social assistance at half the levels it was intended, lack of support for children in schools and other difficulties. In any case, um, The other very serious question that's been asked about the relocation effort was whether or not ultimately it really brought about a very significant net benefit for Malta in the way that was intended. Because as the slide shows you there, we also had during the same time during which these 600 people were transferred out of Malta, um, some 560 people transferred uh, back to Malta in one of those two years alone. So whilst member states had agreed to provide Malta with this generous form of uh, support through the relocation, at the same time the unqualified application of Dublin meant that Malta was getting back probably close to the same number of people by another means. Um, Malta is strongly favouring the idea that relocation should become a permanent feature of the European asylum system, but other member states are not offering places, so it remains to be seen whether this is really ever going to become a mainstream part of the EU framework. 
European Asylum Support Office, briefly. I mentioned it before, a specific agency charged with uh, supporting member states. And one of its key activities is the provision of different forms of support. Permanent, something that's available for all member states in the form of provision of training, curricula and materials, country of origin information, um, a forum for meeting in order to compare practice. There is also special support available for states that ask for particular tailor-made arrangements to assist them meet particular needs. Italy right now has 44 measures under a special support program that are designed to help strengthen its reception and processing system. And then emergency support of the kind lent to Greece. IASO also has a potentially crucial role in the next few years in in the implementation of the so-called early warning and preparedness mechanism. I mentioned the proposal to have a temporary suspension system in the Dublin regulation when it was recast uh, last year. Member states declined to do that, but instead they proposed and agreed on a system which is designed to identify and advance emerging problems in asylum systems and prevent them from developing into the kinds of systemic deficiencies that the Court of Justice found problematic and based on which Dublin cannot be applied. So the early warning mechanism in Article 33 is specifically designed to deal with situations where, quote, the application of the Dublin regulation might be jeopardised. Its motivations are clear. It's designed essentially to allow the IASO to gather information about how member states' asylum systems are progressing, information on caseloads, on backlogs, on numbers of staff, um, aberrations in recognition or rejection rates, for example. And there is scope thereafter for the Commission, based on IASO's information, to propose the adoption of a so-called preventative action plan Thereafter, if that preventative action plan comprising measures to assist the member state in question is not found to succeed, then there is scope to adopt a so-called crisis management action plan. And so this, in a way, is is designed to ensure in a proactive and positive way that we will not have um, needs developing in a member state's asylum system of the scale that led to human rights violations in Greece. There's some problems with the early warning mechanism. However, I think that we can foresee. First of all, the crisis management and the preventative action plans aren't binding. The council may adopt them, the member state will receive them, the commission will monitor them. But if a member state decides it's not going to abide by it, then it seems there's nothing that can be done, apart from infringement proceedings in the normal exercise of the commission's power, something that can take years and years on end. A second question that's been asked about these early warning mechanisms is whether or not EASO really has the independence, the objectivity and the means to be able to gather the sort of information it will need to obtain a clear picture of what's really happening in member states. It has no field level presence. It relies on information from member states. It seeks to have a dialogue with uh, civil society but in some areas that's proving a challenge. Um, And EASO, if it's going to point out serious emerging problems in a member state system, is going to have to move away from its current role, which is entirely supportive, into something that would be uh, quite critical, and that would require a change of approach. So, these raise some questions about whether or not, indeed, the EASO's work, and in particular perhaps the early warning mechanism, can contribute to more collaboration, to more solidarity amongst member states that could promote better observation of protection standards. Um, Just a quick word, because I realise I'm 
speaking longer than intended. On the question then about third countries, I've spoken to you at length about the extensive discussions between member states about how they can and should help each other. But of course the question is raised about the European Union's responsibilities towards other countries, for many cases dealing with uh, refugee challenges far outweighing those that are within the Union's borders. Um, there is a treaty provision relating to this. There is a requirement that states in that take partnership and cooperation with third countries for the purpose of managing inflows of people applying for protection. It's not precisely clear that this means helping those states to ensure that asylum seekers and refugees can receive full respect for their rights. Um, it could be seen as something that's focusing rather on the EU's interest in um, containing people in need of protection in other regions. But nonetheless, partnership and cooperation is something that, the, that uh, is a key priority. Um, there is, of course, a long-standing record of past cooperation between the EU and other states in regards to asylum and migration. There's been extensive programs of capacity building over the years, programs that UNHCR has supported and encouraged, pointing to the EU's obligation as a leading actor in the international protection system. There have also been proposals over the years for what could be termed burden-shifting arrangements, extraterritorial processing of asylum seekers who had engaged EU member states' responsibilities but who uh, might be processed in other states with no promise that the EU would be ready to give them long-term protection. These were ideas that surfaced particularly in the early 2000s and which are not a part of the EU's current undertakings but which are discussed from time to time. So what the EU is actually doing and is planning to do is continue its investment in asylum and migration and border capacity building. The new EU budget for the period up to 2020 also foresees extensive funds committed to that. There has been, um, uh, in the last couple of years, adoption of a so-called joint EU resettlement program, which, amongst other things, is aimed at ensuring that funds will be given to states to encourage them to resettle more refugees from third countries. Although to date we still have relatively modest results in that respect, still less than 5,000 a year resettled to the whole 28 member states compared to some 50,000 to the US and 10,000 to Australia alone. And there is um, a notion uh, known as regional protection programs that uh, the EU is committed to developing further, which essentially aims to combine asylum and protection capacity building with resettlement in an effort to bring about benefits both for the EU and for third countries in caring for refugees. Um, some controversy in EU circles about regional protection programs. The money involved is very limited, um, certainly by comparison with humanitarian aid and development funds. And so some questions are raised about whether really this is a good example of effective coordination of international assistance for refugee-affected countries. But um, it will be something that will have to be discussed further in the years to come because the, J the Justice and Home Affairs Actors have made it clear they want to pursue this regional protection program idea in a larger way. There are, of course, other questions about some other forms of interaction that uh, raise doubts about whether really any solidarity is being shown at all. I mentioned safe third country practices, uh, which some member states on a reasonably limited basis, it has to be seen, but nonetheless in some cases in Central and Eastern Europe are still using. And a very strong emphasis in the EU on readmission and return. Um, again, in a way that doesn't arguably take account of whether or not states, other states that are party to those agreements have the capacity to absorb and respect the rights of people in question. 
So, what happens next in conclusion? Well, we'll see what states have to say about solidarity in the so-called strategic guidelines, sometimes known as the post-Stockholm program. The European Council is due to adopt this level of heads of state and government uh, on the 25th and 26th of June, and this is supposed to provide us with the vision for the next seven years. So after the Tampere, Hague and Stockholm programs, we will now have conclusions adopted um, uh, under the Greek presidency that should give us uh, an orientation. And apparently the discussions are difficult and challenging, with many states wanting to be very conservative, um, uh, focusing almost exclusively on uh, implementation of existing norms. Whereas some other states are arguing very strongly that there needs to be strong and clear and unequivocal language about strengthening solidarity. One of the things that these guidelines could and arguably should uh, articulate is clearly perhaps putting in very clear terms the need for more effective and targeted, transparent use of some of the very significant funds that are available at EU level to promote solidarity. Um, There clearly is a need for and some interest in trying to continue building on what's the lessons that have been learned through the technical support that has been provided over recent years to states that have needed it. And in this respect, it could refer not only to the EASO, where there are many expectations, but also to the role of HCR, civil society and others. The relocation uh, idea is something which at least some member states will be uh, wanting to see included, but it will be interesting to see whether it makes it in. And certainly if it does, it should be subject to very clear stipulations that this is something that should require the consent both of the refugee in question as well as the state concerned. Double voluntariness because this has brought about some problems in the experiences we've seen so far. Joint actions. There is significant interest in the idea of joint processing of asylum claims or at least joint work on certain parts of the asylum process and the European Asylum Support Office has been tasked with developing a pilot on this. Um, What some reports indicate is that this is limited in quite a conservative uh, approach to the idea to working together up to and not including the appointment of a personal interview of an asylum seeker. Apparently Greece and Italy have heard of this idea and have said that it's not interesting for them unless it includes joint processing with support throughout the entire process, including redistribution of those people who are found to need protection at the end. Um, Something they're not likely to get, I think, given other member states' commitment to maintaining the system uh, in many respects as it is. Mutual recognition of asylum decision is also something that the Commission has recently put on the table in its communication of mid-March. An interesting idea because this would imply a much greater degree of free movement of people granted protection than we have now. Um, It could mean that we effectively have a kind of de facto responsibility sharing as asylum, as as people granted protection would then seek to exercise that right and move to states where they felt their needs might better be met than those where they have initially been received. But again, this is something which is rather sensitive and it's probably something that some states will resist very strongly at this stage until such time as asylum systems have progressed and developed further. Um, Clearly there is, I think, a need to discuss further the idea of solidarity. We have very different visions, we have very different understandings and we have enormously different expectations about what this uh, concept should bring. And so whatever emerges from the process next month in the European Council, certainly I think we need to hope that there will be a chance for open and frank discussion about this if we're going to see progress towards better refugee protection based on the principle of solidarity in the EU.
Thank you very much. For more information about the different ways you can stay updated and engaged with the work of the Refugee Study Centre, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk forward slash connect.